Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Hey everyone, this is Lord Dragonblue. You're listening to the Linux and the Hamshack Show, people. So strap in and grab the bacon. Everybody and welcome once again to Linux in the Ham Shack. You have, for whatever reason, tuned into episode number 180 of our program. And with you tonight is me, myself, and two others. I'm Russ, K5TUX. Sitting across from me is Cheryl. Good evening, everyone. And out in white, snowy, big country, big sky country, Montana, is Bill, NE4RD. Good evening, everyone. I assume you have some snow out there anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had about uh, a foot and a half or so. Today? Uh, no, it was over the last few days. It uh, it stopped uh, the other day. And- oh, I remember those days back when I used to live in Maine. So let's jump right in. We're going to talk about, speaking of snow, pathways to the polar region. Rare polar openings reported on 630 meters. John Langridge, KB5NJD. Uh, slash WG2XIQ reports that extremely rare polar openings have been occurring uh, the past three nights on 630 meters between a number of North American stations in Roth, uh, Torvik, LA2XPA in Norway. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting because I, uh, I was running a whisper mode on, fourth, uh, on 630 meters here at the house just to kind of see what I was hearing. There's quite a bit of activity there. And of course, uh, they all have ex- you know, the experimental call signs and, and stuff like that. And and then I was looking at uh, this guy's uh, setup, which we've also uh, linked in the show notes. He's got a uh, pretty isolated shack out on an island that he remotes into it via a 5 gigahertz link. So I thought that was pretty cool, too. There's quite a bit of experimenters working on it. And uh, there has also been uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, crossband tests as well, where it'll be like working splits between uh, 160 and, uh, and 630 just uh, for testing purposes. Yeah, I think we've actually done a story about 500 megahertz operation in the past. So 500 kilohertz? Uh, uh, yes, kilohertz, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, enough about that. All right, well, so, now we talked about the digital modes, right? Yeah, let's talk about some new modes in WSJTX 1.7 general release, previously beta, obviously. WSJTX implements communication protocols or modes called JT4, JT9, JT65, QRA64, iSCAT, MSK144, and Whisper, as well as one called Echo for detecting and measuring your own radio signals reflected from the moon. Uh, These modes were all designed for making reliable confirmed QSOs under extreme weak signal conditions. MSK-144 is intended for meteor scatter at 50 megahertz and higher, speaking of 6 meters. There was some debate on this particular mode that was interesting here in the Reddit thread. So what was the Reddit thread about MSK-144? So the MSK-144, basically when two people make contact, the initial contact, it creates a hash of the two call signs. And then subsequent traffic between those two stations no longer carries the call sign and is slightly encrypted because of the hash. It actually has like a hash key and everything else that, that goes along with it. There was some debate amongst people in, uh, in Reddit, which that's what Reddit's for, right? Debating <laughs> or <laughs> arguing or whatever. Trolling. 
Yeah, trolling. Yeah, exactly. About the you know the legality of that when you know you you can no longer decrypt the traffic. Is it truly you know? undecryptable? Uh, you know, I don't think I don't think it is. But the intention and the length, you know, I don't think is a don't think it really is an issue. It was it was definitely an interesting discussion because. You know, they're they're thinking that, oh, man, they're going to have this encrypted conversation. It's like, no, this is for meteor scatter. You have about, I don't know, five minutes or less to make a contact. Or sometimes it's like, uh, you know, less than a minute. You know, some of these transmissions are 72 milliseconds long. So, right. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, it's a very high paced thing. And I was like, you know, you can see it when the when they're initially calling CQ and stuff like that. But as soon as they lock together, you know, that's when they have their own, you know, their own special key to finish that conversation, that, that QSO, so that they can lock onto that signal much better. Isn't the difference between encryption and obfuscation? Because combining two things and issuing that data as a hash is not the same thing as trying to obfuscate the meaning or make unintelligible the communication. I think if you're just trying to combine data into a smaller form factor for transmission in a narrower window... You're not deliberately trying to obfuscate the data that's being sent. You're just trying to do it in a more efficient manner. That's how I'm looking at it. Right. Yeah, and all you would need to, to really decode the packets would be both ends call signs. So, I mean, really, it's a, it's a hash based upon that. Okay. And so then it's... it is decodable once you have those pieces of information. So it's not like it's, uh, you yeah. know, it's purposefully encrypting the traffic so you can't see it no because you have the intent you have uh, obviously discoverable hash mechanism or hash key which is the the endpoints of the transmission so exactly right so i i don't i mean people could say anything like speaking in a foreign language would be a way of obfuscating a transmission but that you know obviously clearly is not what the rule is intended to address right yeah it it complies with all the uh you know id rules you know 10 minutes, you're not even going to make a, a, a meteor scatter contact over a 10-minute period. So you're never going to hit a 10-minute timer. And there were a lot of people saying that. It's like, oh, you know, if it's some value greater than 10 minutes of violation, you can tell these people have never, ever, ever done meteor scatter. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, in, in my, my days of doing meteor scatter, which was probably about, you know, 16, 17 years ago, none of the contacts lasted more than, uh, more than three minutes. You know, you'd right. go on uh, 15... Is it 15 second increments? Yeah, I think it's 15 second or 30 second increments. If you're in the south, you're like the first half of the minute. You know, it almost works like the way JT65 does. You know, it's very time sensitive depending upon where you're at. And and you would call, you'd be like, you know, CQ, blah, 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 you know, call sign and grid square. And you, you say it as many times as you can in that 15 second or 30 second window. You wait, you listen back for somebody, and then you pass your grid square, signal report, you know, so on and so forth. And yeah, you know, the contacts never last that long because the the burn across the atmosphere doesn't last that long. So yeah, I I thought it was interesting, an interesting topic. I, I don't think it has any any merit, at least with the uh, illegal gas. Uh, yeah, can't even say it <laughs> in an illegal area. You know, it's it's right. a perfectly uh, acceptable uh, a transmission. Um, and it, it's not like encrypted without any way to reverse encrypt the the message. I mean that that in itself makes it. Uh, I would say legal, quote unquote. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, other modes are QRA sixty four, which is intended for EME, which is Earth Moon Earth or Moon Bounce, and ISCAT or Ionospheric Scatter, uh, which is essentially the same 
and other versions of WSJT. Uh, all of this is, of course, for uh, weak signal communication. And if you've ever done any JT9 or JT65, you know exactly what we're talking about. And if you haven't, uh, download WSJTX and give it a try. It's actually kind of fun because there's, yeah, the, there's very little work involved. You just kind of sit there and wait for contacts to happen. Yeah, exactly. And the 1.7 version no longer has the uh, the uh, KSASD or KVASD uh, requirement. That's good because that would screwed me a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if if you've used it in Linux, you've had to download that component separately. And some people, uh, yeah, have a little problem getting that going. And in uh, in Windows, I think it comes with it. But um, yeah, I had no problem. I was already running the 1.7 version because I have the I have the PPA uh, loaded up on the Linux box in Linux, and and uh, I went to the regular release without a problem. But in the Windows box, it, I did have to whack the entire uh, WSJTX directory because when I first launched it, my uh, my waterfall was blank. <laughs> so, so something was left behind that wasn't supposed to be there. Look at Bill with his fancy PPAs. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Our next story is a letter from a concerned 25-year-old ham, K9HAX. The letter in Reddit was more of a haphazard rant before the author started making edits to clarify himself. Even though the initial dialogue was a bit meh, one of his main points was open sourcing ham radio software. I believe we need some clarification on licensing OS versus FOSS. And his secondary point had to do with the aging ham population and their reluctance to give up their outdated systems. This was an interesting uh, interesting explosive rant <laughs> that you again we can easily find from trolls and whatnot on uh, on uh, Reddit but uh, there were some interesting points he did make and I can I can assume this from a young guy's perspective walking into gee I don't know pick any ham club and walk in the door I'm not a young guy anymore but I'm still the youngest guy that walks in the door I don't know if this is true in Missouri for the clubs that I've I haven't actually joined a club or or gone to any club meetings, but I've gone to like field day where members of local clubs visit, and I've been to the local ham fest a couple of times. Now, ham fest attendees tend to be, by and large, older than I am. For clarification, I just turned 47, so, you know, large population of them tend to be older than me. But it seems like the clubs, or at least the uh, Southwest Missouri Amateur Radio Club, SMARC, uh, a lot of their members are actually fairly young. So, good. yeah, it is very good. <clears throat> well, that's not the case here. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm 42, so I'm a little younger, but not, not that much younger. I, you know, you go in and you see these laptops running windows 95, they're running, you know, old versions of FL Digi and, and other, you know, his concern was again on like emergency communications. They're running old, old laptops. They're running old, old software. His push was for use the latest software on everything, you know, use the latest modes, use, you know, all this closed source software like N1MM and, and, and uh, HRD and everything else should be open source. And it would be better if it was running on Linux. And I was like, oh, Linux. Yeah, I, I got to get on with that. <laughs> <laughs> he did have some thoughts that were understandable, you know, and, and, and I could relate with it very, very well, even though I'm not a a 25-year-old ham anymore. There was a time at, at which I was, and I still feel that things haven't changed that much, <laughs> you know, except for we have, you know, JT65 now, and I'm all, I'm all happy. You know, I don't think the old technologies is necessarily a bad thing. 
Yeah, I could say Windows 95 is probably a bad thing. And if we have anything that relies on that, yeah, probably a bad thing. But it's not terrible. Because really, when it comes to an emergency, you're not going to have the internet. So you're not going to worry about getting some kind of virus or something like that. Uh, You're not going to have the latest build of uh, Chrome or something like that on it. Because it doesn't really matter. Really, they're trying to run the messaging software, which is most likely FL Digi, FL, you know, what is it, FL Message and FLARQ and stuff like that for do it, passing emergency traffic. And, and I think that would run fine on a Windows 95 machine. I, I don't see a problem with that, you know, and, and let's, let's talk about digital versus analog. I mean, there's another big, you know, step is going to a proprietary digital format, you know, the best thing, you know, going to a D-Star. Is that going to run when there's no internet? Yeah, yeah, you can run D-Star point to point. You can run a repeater, but on the other hand, you have a bit of a fracturing of, a, of, of the environments. You know, you have a group of people that probably only have an analog HD in an emergency because they finally pull it out and they say, oh, my God, you know, there's no power. There's no lights. It's negative 20 degrees. I, you know, I need to contact somebody. You know, it's important that we maintain a level of legacy going forward. I think there's a case to be made for all technologies. You don't want to exclude one technology over another because they can all be useful in some way. And I read through the Reddit article. He did make a point to address the fact that it's not necessarily a bad thing to have older hardware because in some cases that works fine. And in any event, it may be the only thing you have access to uh, in an emergency situation or something like that. So you don't want to necessarily exclude the old in favor of the new 100%. It was rather a long, rambling sort of discussion, and I noticed he had a few uh, interstitial edits in there uh, where he sort of revised his thoughts on various things. Uh, it was it was definitely an interesting read, though. So if you've got some time and if you want to uh, sink a few hours into reading the uh, responses, <laughs> you know, the comments to the thread, then you know, by all means, do that. But yeah, I think yeah. I gen- think it'd be a worth worthwhile read. Uh, just as initial comments are good, but I don't think it's anything new. I don't think it's anything that hasn't been said before. I think a case can be made either way. And if you read that article and, uh, you'll definitely see both sides of the issue. Yeah. And also check out Sterling, uh, Kofi's response there. I also linked that in the show notes. He is a, you know, self-proclaimed young person in the hobby. So, uh, yeah, I think he had some, uh, some good comments on it as well that he brought, you know, outside of the Reddit thread. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to read his response, but I'm going to do that after the show. And we, we got to meet Sterling at uh, Hamvention this year, so that was that was kind of cool. So this, this uh, episode so far has been pretty ham radio heavy, but this is all leading up to this topic, which is uh, the whiz-bang humdinger for the evening. We here at Linux and the Ham Shack have had a hate on for Ham Radio Deluxe for some time now. I think you can probably go back into our very early episodes and find references to our dislike for HRD for basically just everything it represents, how it was developed, what kind of people tend to use it, the animus they have displayed towards uh, the idea of open source and creating a free available product, and so on and so forth. But now it seems to be coming to a head. So Ham Radio Deluxe implements the blacklist. In our lead-up to the holiday season, the owners of Ham Radio Deluxe HRD Software, LLC, seem to have been caught in something you would only believe could happen in the land of Yelp. I started following the story from the QRZ post uh, from uh, N2SUB, who stated that his license had been revoked for the software. 
HRD's uh, license file, Section 8, states that the, they, the company reserve the right to refuse service and disable a customer's key at any time for any reason. So this is a software subscription service. What happened here was uh, the user had some problems getting their HRD working with their, their FTDX 3000 radio. This is a Yezu radio. He had contacted support, and they said, oh, you're not running the latest version of the software. Please install the latest version. Well, little did he know the latest version also phones home and validates the license against the, uh, the, the user's call sign. He was added to a blacklist for leaving a bad review on Eham for the software. I believe he left one star or zero stars. I, I forget about looking at that. The key to this is really the communication between the tech support and him. What they said was, I'm sorry, but your support has expired. We are unable to provide any further report. We would also like to request that you not renew your support nor use our software. Do the review you had placed on Eham back in September. And uh, they said, remember that and then put the link in there. And I'm looking at his review and he gave it one out of five. They signed it. Good luck and 73 HRD tech support. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, you know, he responds like, okay, let me just let me just follow this up here and and they 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 went back and forth and you know they passed them the whole license thing saying you know we reserve the right to fuse service and one of the tech support people rick w4rc or something like that i'd have to have to look at my notes said if you remove the ham eham review which was blatantly false we will remove the blacklist from you call great uh, english there as well you are not buying software you are buying your call signs access to the software the so-called buggy report is not one in HRD, but a cat commands of the FT3000, blah, blah, blah. Again, refer to Section 8 of the Terms of Service, which was written by our attorney. So, <laughs> yeah, this goes on and on. Wow, that's, that's ballsy. <laughs> it sounds very and, Microsoft-esque, where you don't actually yeah. have access to the software. You only have a license to use the software if we so deem that you are fit to use fit to our use software. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly. Unless so, you write us a negative review or say that you hate our kids or that you, you voted for Trump or whatever yeah. it is. It's like yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> so strangely enough, I mean, uh, this was just technically outlawed the other day by Obama signing whatever uh, legislation that was. Uh, uh, just uh, was it fr- uh, Monday? It kind of smelled more like you know almost racketeering because you know they're kind of like doing a tit for tat type thing. You know, it's like yeah, I'll I'll make sure they don't you know break things if uh, you do this, and uh, you know that generally is not a legal business practice in the U.S. anyway. <laughs> well, there was something he said, and I don't think you addressed it directly about the fact that it looked like the the update actually included software that deliberately broke the software. No, um, that that was wrong. Right. So what happened was it just locked the software. It prevented him actually executing it. So as soon as the software splash screen would come up, it would go ahead and phone home, and you know, it'd validate his license. And so since he had a valid license, it would just go away. Right. So and the he, software uh, would not run. Right. He characterized that as a Trojan horse, which in a way it kind of is, uh, but it's it's not unlike the way other people handle the same thing. If you uh, like Windows activation, where it will actually phone home and check to see that your license is actually uh, listed in the de- in the database as valid access. Um, right. Otherwise- now, now, had they had known this prior to telling him to update his software, that would also be considered probably something not very legal to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, because they purposely told him to, you know, install a version that would then lock him out of his software. So they're trying to provide him, you know, I'm doing air quotes here in my my shack, 
some customer service here. Yeah, they basically screw the guy. The thread in, uh, on the QRZ Z forum is, is uh, like 72 pages now. Wow. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah, it's... So, had over 40,000 views the last time I looked at it. And apparently they <laughs> left the guy some pretty uh, spicy voicemails. <laughs> so, you know, this is kind of, uh, uh, yeah, this is just kind of badger. Yeah, <laughs> There's no exactly. better way to say it. No. So the CEO has officially apologized and they have removed everyone they had in their blacklist off. However, the, the question still remains, does this, is this permanently going to hurt Ham Radio Deluxe HRD software? In the future, well, and it, it will I, if I have anything yes. to do with it. <laughs> well, but the thing is, there are some people that are diehard Ham Radio Deluxe people. Oh no, yeah, we hear about them yeah. all the time at so, Ham Radio. Yeah, so I imagine that they don't care if Ham Radio Deluxe burns down the earth; they will still use it. There are those diehard users that will never change. Well, until they come across this blacklist thing, if they ever say one negative thing in any context, you know, who has time to sit around scouring the internet looking for negative reviews of their software? Obviously, they have some people uh, there that that's their job. <laughs> Apparently so. so. I mean, that's maybe that's why HRD is so friggin' expensive, is because they got, yeah. <laughs> there's a team of people sitting around looking for people saying Badger. about HRD. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're in 100% damage control right now. It, it would be interesting to hear from their resellers. What do they think about this? Yeah, there's a whole thing about, because uh, uh, HRO, uh, and there were a couple others mentioned specifically, and HRO is a huge reseller, and they are one of the people that will resell uh, Ham Radio Deluxe. And I don't think HRO wants to be involved in this kind of uh controversy Issue. controversy is that the word controversy yeah. <laughs> uh yeah and, and they've of course been you know quiet during this whole process well yeah there's lots of information about this there's uh at least one reddit thread there's all kinds of stuff um and links to all of this juicy information is in the show notes and yeah it's quite the scandal Ooh. yeah oh ham radio deluxe also deleted their twitter account so <laughs> probably so they just didn't have to deal with deal it with it yeah <laughs> Yeah, and torch the history and stuff like that. Right. Although, you know, something I saw probably a year or two ago that said that all tweets or a significant portion thereof actually wind up in the Library of Congress because it's, um, yeah, it's public information. It's public information, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, and their digital archives, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it winds up in the Library of Congress. So they, you know, HRD can delete their Twitter account if they so choose, but, but I think if somebody wants to there. Yeah, hit the microfiche, they're going to find it. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, I did want to go back to the previous topic uh because uh kb1 ysi in the chat room said uh uh the argument could be made that with live distros you could have a shack on a stick in your go kit and yeah, uh, that that is true as we were talking about the 25 year old ham thing very much so it's very easy to have a computer os fully functional with software in your pocket that you can plug in and go at any time be an example. Show them, show them all that stuff. You know, show them that all the open source software that they can use. You know, bring in a fully loaded laptop, <laughs> right? And show them that they can accomplish the same tasks in open source, and you know, possibly revive some of this older hardware, and uh, you know, make it useful. All right. So moving on from our ham radio topics, we're going to move into open source, and uh, I threw this one in just before the show on. 
Friday I found this. I think Linux Mint has the ability and does it sort of automatically finds the fastest mirror that's available to you to download your software onto the computer and you don't have to necessarily pick a Mint mirror. You can choose the one that is quickest to download the software for wherever you happen to be. So I was wondering about, is there some way to do this in Debian? Because I tend to use Debian more than anything else, more than Ubuntu or Arch or Fedora or Mint or, or anything else. And it turns out that, yes, there is a way, which is very cool. And I didn't know about it before, so I'm going to tell you about it now. Uh, there's a package you can download called netselect-apt, A-P-T. Uh, all you have to do is apt-get install it or apt install it, depending on how recent your version of Debian is. You apt install netselect-apt, and then you just simply run it. If you run netselect-apt, what it will do is it will go out to all of the mirrors that it knows about from wherever your machine happens to be. It will profile your network connection and the availability of packages and the latency between your host and the app repositories that netselect actually knows about. It will determine which one is fastest, and then it will create a sources.list file that you can actually install in slash Etsy slash apt in place of your current sources.list file that for your distribution will have the repositories that were accessed most quickly uh, by the profiler. Uh, And once you do that, then anytime you do an apt update and an apt upgrade or apt dist upgrade from that point on, you'll be accessing packages from the repository that is fastest for you. This sort of functionality is also built in in a GUI functionality uh, via Ubuntu's software manager. Uh, There's an option for selecting the fastest repository, and it's also available as an option using Synaptic. And that will work for any distribution which uses Synaptic, like Debian or Mint or Ubuntu or any of the Debian derivatives, which is sort of a point-and-click way of doing the same thing. But for straight-up Debian or any of the non-sort of GUI-related uh, package manager variants of Debian, you can use netselect-apt uh, to pick your fastest mirror and get your updates that much quicker. From using the standard ftp.us.debian.org uh, repository that I was using to the one that was selected for me by the netselect-apt application, I believe I got about a three-fold increase in download speed. That's the difference between uh, selecting one that's profiled to be the fastest and one that's randomly selected for you. Uh, so it could be very useful for some folks, and I just wanted to throw that out there as an option. Uh, it's so easy to use. A link to how to do it for Synaptic Ubuntu and from the command line in Debian will be included in the show notes. So let's move <laughs> on to a song by Foreigner. Feels like the first time. Contributing to open source for the first time can be scary and a little overwhelming. Perhaps you're a code newbie, or maybe you've been coding for a while, but you haven't found a project you felt comfortable contributing to. This site will help you get started contributing to open source projects by helping you find ones that need help. And this site is called First Timers Only. It has a a, a pretty uh, simple website, and uh, basically they look for uh, various locations that you can find projects that are looking for help. I mean, there are a lot of projects out there, a lot of projects on GitHub, and everywhere else, and there's projects you're probably interested in helping with that they don't want you to help with. But, uh, you know, you need to get, if you're interested in programming in open source and contributing, you know, you got to start somewhere. And if you don't know where to start, this is a friendly place 
to find some projects to work on. I have a couple of comments about this. The first one is firsttimersonly.com. Make sure it's .com and not .xxx because that sounds a lot <laughs> like farmers only or Christians only or any of those other sites, and that's a whole different thing. The other thing I noticed is that the first link on this page is upforgrabs.net. It just reminded me of um, like the Century Club and all of the Worked All States uh, nets that are out there in the world. They have a concept called Up for Grabs, where if you're just out there to help other people get their WAS awards, you say, I'm Up for Grabs, and then people will contact you. And I thought it was kind of a, a really interesting sort of link between the ham radio and open source world that these concepts would exist in both. So if you want to get involved as a first-time contributor to open source, this is a great resource. I looked at a few of the links through here. Uh, and they have a great way to get involved or to at least contact people about uh, being involved in a project that you might be able to participate in, whether it's uh, from coding perspective or a beta testing perspective or a documentation perspective. That kind of participation and support is needed uh, all across the open source world. And this leads right into our next topic where we're measuring success in open source projects. So once you've gotten into that project, how do you really measure success of an open source project? It's really, really hard to measure success. There's many factors, like, you know, how many contributors do you have? How many people do you have reviewing the software? How many people have using the software? How many people are active in the community? How do you attach a score to that? I was thinking about this the other day because I'm, like, getting ready to start a couple of small projects myself here. And I'm like, wow, you know, at what point do I know that it's not just an idea, but an idea that people are interested in? And there's engagement. I think whether it's adopted, whether on a small or large scale, and is it finds an affinity with users and is considered usable and something that can be recommended. I mean, because the only other metric you can really use for success, I guess, in the software project would be monetary success, right? But since we're talking about open source software, that can be ephemeral. Some some open source projects benefit financially, but most don't. If the software is used, if it finds a community, if it's shown to be usable, I guess you could call that successful. I'm not sure anyone writes open source software to become rich. <laughs> At least I would hope not, because <laughs> that, <laughs> that's probably not oh, really? the path you want to take. Yeah, I, I guess you probably want to put that dream on the back burner. Yeah, I mean, you can monetize projects. There's ways to do it, and there's healthy ways to do it in an open source environment. Yeah, absolutely. You, I mean, look at, you know, look you at. You just don't want to pull a freeware to nowhere, right? <laughs> right. I don't know. I mean, I would think that if I wrote a piece of software, maybe if I wrote it for myself and I put it out there on GitHub or something and 10 people downloaded it and thought it was useful, I would consider that successful. It's not like I was expecting to make money off of the project, and I may get a donation or two in the same way that the podcast, I think, is successful because there are people who download it, listen to it, and benefit from it in some way. And we're certainly not getting rich off of it, but I would consider Linux and the Hamshack to be a success. And I think that software that's written for the same purpose to the same end could be considered successful if other people use it and find it useful. Success is defined by, you know, the eye of the beholder. It's really how the individual who is running the project feels about that project whether or not it's successful right guess we'll move on to farmbot just a flash topic here i just thought it was so cool um farmbot is humanity's open source automated precision farming machine picture farmbots as a giant 3d printer but instead of extruding plastic its tools are seed and 
detectors, watering nozzles, sensors, and more. Uh, our vision is to create open, accessible technology, aiding everyone to grow food and to grow food for everyone. Hey, all for one, one for all. Hey, <laughs> our mission is to grow a community that produces free and open source hardware, plans, software, data, documentation, enabling everyone to build and operate a farming machine. So basically, this is a kit that you can buy or a kit that you can build. The plans are out there if you want to build every last bit of it. And the software is all out there if you just want to use the software and improve it. And also in this, I, I, in the show notes, I also linked in, uh, there's a project for open sourcing seeds. So I thought it was a nice pairing between the two. Uh, you have a farm bot, then you have your open source seeds. So uh, check out both of those projects. They're kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, if you're kind of interested in that stuff and interested in open source, it, uh, it seemed interesting to me. I love the fact that open source doesn't necessarily refer to just software anymore. We've talked about open source hardware, and now we're talking about open source in the way that life hackers talk about open source, sort of the ability to do things in an open and shareable way that doesn't necessarily address software or hardware or even computers or technology in general, just a way to, to promulgate information. So now we're going to move on from our open source topics to Linux in the ham shack. And the first thing we're going to talk about is Ubuntu budgie and the Bougie. Uh, yep. Yeah, or bougie. That's right. Ubuntu bougie. Uh, Ubuntu bougie. But so, uh, yeah, uh, Ubuntu bougie 1610. Now, now this isn't the official release of the flavor for Ubuntu. That will not be out until 1704 where they'll actually have the official build of Ubuntu Budgie. So right now it's still kind of the Ubuntu Budgie flavor. <laughs> I believe <laughs> they call of, it a remix. Yeah, it's got yeah, the remix. Yeah, it's pre pre uh, official build, but uh I, I decided I finally did it. I, I was I was gonna try something else besides Solus on my uh my good old trusty here uh ThinkPad two twenty, X two twenty. And uh you know I kinda like I like Budgie. I like it in Solus. Um, so I want to see how well it looked and felt and played inside of Ubuntu. And uh, besides Skype for Linux, <laughs> <laughs> everything has worked great. And then I installed the uh, Ham Radio uh, meta packages. I installed all of them just to kind of get a good swath of Ham Radio software on here. And everything worked, including I didn't have any problems with the uh, CQR log and uh, MariaDB. I did try getting my... Uh, my little cheapy uh, RTLSDR dongle working, but uh, I think I still have some issues with that, and it might be just hardware related. I did get uh, I did get some signals on it, so I can't say it didn't work. And I'm not overly familiar with all the SDR software, so I did load SDR Sharp because I had used it in the past, and that worked fine. So I'm assuming that I can eventually get all the other software that's available out there for it to work because. Uh, you know, I'm basically launching the uh, RTL TCP connector that connects the uh, the USB dongle to uh, to basically a server. You know, it creates its own little port and stuff like that. And then you just point your uh, your SDR software to that uh, to that port on your machine, and it should work in theory. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, it worked out great. Uh, I'm not going to give a score to it only because we've already done that. Budgie uh, works pretty much the same as it does in Solus, except for it's not quite as fast as it is in Solus. There's probably a little better optimization and stuff like that. It's a native build environment. And uh, what was the other odd thing? Now, it could be just on my system. The menu does not update when I install something. So I have to go out of my session and come back to uh, get the menu to refresh. 
seeing your review here of Budgie 16.10 remix of Ubuntu, decided to install it on my machine in a virtual machine environment. And I did that this afternoon. And I got to say, it's a fantastic looking operating system. It kind of makes Ubuntu with the Unity desktop actually, well, it's not, it, it doesn't use Unity. It actually makes, no. I think it's what Unity should have been, actually, is what Budgie is. Yeah. It's actually a fantastic and very slick looking desktop. Uh, everything you need is sort of right where you need it. And there's nothing there that you don't really need. And the little circle in the upper left that actually gives you gives you access to the drop down menu is is all you really need. Uh, it's perfect. It's uh, it's it looks very nice. Of course, being based on Ubuntu, it has access to all of like the virtualization software. It does the VirtualBox uh, editions by default. It does the third party drivers for video card software by default. If you need that. I didn't get to the point of installing ham radio software on it. I just wanted to see sort of how it performed in a virtual machine environment on my Debian machine. And I got to say, I really, really like it. So I can't wait to actually put it on some bare metal. The installation procedure did have one little bit of weirdness in the virtual machine environment. Once I got past the time zone selection screen, when it started asking about like what users I wanted to have on the machine and stuff like that, the actual physical dimensions of the screen exceeded my virtual machine window, and there was <laughs> no way to expand it. I had to know enough to like tab around on the screen to select the option that I couldn't actually see to move on to the next selection and so on. That, that happened like two or three times, but as long as I got through that and got to the point where the software was actually installed, uh, rebooted and uh, booted into the fully functioning operating system with all the drivers installed and everything, then it worked flawlessly from that point. But I can see that being a serious hang-up uh, for someone who didn't realize that there was a button to move on to the next that was actually <laughs> off the side of the screen where it wasn't even visible. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's a problem, and hopefully that will be addressed by the 1704 version yeah, I think that's hit and miss on a few different installers. I, I know I've I know I've ran into that a few times. If the uh, window I had in the uh, this only happens really in VirtualBox, uh, you know, if the window is too small to begin with and it's not resizable at that point, um, yeah, things get a little a little goofy. Right. But uh, uh, yeah, I did put this on bare metal, like I said, and uh, I'm running two monitors on it, and it it looks great. It looks great, but I, I kind of do miss Solus, so. We'll see how long this lasts. <laughs> All right. So, in a past couple of episodes, we've talked about talking about Splat. So, let's talk a little bit about Splat. I actually got a chance to use it a little bit. So, did you get a chance to use it? What we're talking about here is a propagation analysis tool, and that's what Splat is. And uh, basically, you put in two QTHs or two points in space on the Earth, and you put in a frequency, and it calculates uh, based upon terrain analysis and loss and propagation, whether or not your signal or what level your signal will be once it gets there, if it can even get there. And it does work. <laughs> you know, right. it, does, it does provide a good analysis, and you have to kind of build everything by hand, which is, uh, you, know, you know, it's fine. You know, you, you can do that in a text editor and whatnot. But I did, I did go out and I, I looked at another uh, the web base because I was thinking, God, there's this free web base. <laughs> <laughs> That I've used before, and uh, I gotta I gotta find it, and that that's the ve2dbe uh, site. Uh, they offer a free way to 
Google Maps overlay your same kind of data. The nice part about that is you only put one location and a frequency, and it gives you the splatter pattern over top of the environment to any any basically anything you could reach. You know, especially for VHF, this is really more important for VHF, 20 megahertz and up, but generally, you know, VHF and up, uh, where you're not going to have any type of uh, skip propagation. Uh, I mean, you're looking just for line of sight. One thing I noticed when I checked out the online version, what I did was I used a TV transmitter tower. It factored in the propagation for that same tower, same tower location, and same elevation for 146 megahertz signal. <laughs> it was kind of boring for where we are because, generally speaking, where that antenna is located and where we are located, the terrain is fairly flat. So the only thing you saw was a big green circle with a few dips where there are, like, valleys for lakes. You know, in Montana, I'm guessing these plots are a lot more exciting. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting because I was trying to see if... Uh if I could talk to him at one of my coworkers house, which kind of lives maybe line line of sight, maybe like 12 miles, 15 miles away, but there's some uh, elevation changes between him and I, and it's not quite clear whether or not uh, the signal would get there. And, and it was really interesting looking at the data because it was like, you know, half of his lot could get me fairly well, but the other half, he couldn't hear me at all. So it was, it was quite interesting as to like, if you were putting a point to point link, this tool could be, pretty useful <laughs> right pretty useful if you're doing like a repeater link or you know secondary receiver for your repeater or whatnot you know these are the kind of tools you need to look at to gather the most coverage in your area absolutely and i did this thing using splat as well um which is basically a command line tool but it will actually generate image files it will generate uh terrain maps loss maps and all kinds of really interesting data it pretty much outputs everything in either text or ppm format which can be read by you know most utilities, uh, GIMP if you want to edit them, or, or any other like image viewer uh, can understand PPM format. The input context for like QTH files is very simple. You basically give it a station identifier, a latitude, a longitude, and an elevation, uh, and then you can use those for generating the plots. It's fairly straightforward. The uh, information documentation is very straightforward. It gives you lots of examples on how to use this, uh, how to create terrain maps, how to create loss maps, how to create path maps, so on and so forth. Basically, you just have to type in a couple of commands. You tell it where you're transmitting from, where you're receiving from. It spits out some image files, and away you go. Uh, The web version does the same thing, except, of course, does it on the web and displays it for you uh, without generating an image file. Uh, so you can try both of those. They're very cool. So Here's anyway, thing. we got predict. Yes, we have predict. And I actually got a chance to use predict today. It's actually very cool. So, uh, it's an open source multi-user satellite tracking and orbital prediction program written under the Linux operating system by John, uh, Magliacane, uh, K2B, KD2BD. Predict is free software. Users may redistribute it and or modify it under the terms of the GPL. Yay. It's kind of like G-Predict, except G-Predict gives you actual graphical maps of, like, you know, overhead satellite passes and stuff like that. But it also gives you the raw data, too. What Predict does is gives you a text-based version of the same information. And what I did with it was I downloaded the software. And by the way, Splat and Predict are both available as DEBs from the repositories in standard Debian distribution. Yep. So you can app dash get install predict and splat. Both work just fine. I and think they're part of the meta packages too. I'm sure they probably are. 
but I have them both on my system. And Predict gives you basically a terminal-based access to this. And what all, all I did was I created, uh, or I did an AppDesk install. I downloaded the TLE data, the bare TLE data from NASA via the AMSET website, uploaded that using the U option in Predict, and then I was able to access all of the functionality where you can say, I want to look at like the ISS or I want to look at uh, AO78 or, you know, pick your satellite. You have to input your location data in decimal notation, Latin long, and then you uh, just select the options, you know, A through X or whatever they are on the screen, uh, and it will output telemetry data and pass information for any satellite that you want to see. And it does it textually. And one nice feature of it was that it would show you visible passes. Like if you wanted to know when the ISS was going to hit your location, when you could actually see it, you could use that particular option as long as you had the TLE information uploaded or downloaded, whatever, uh, in this case. You could say uh, show visible passes, and then for the next, you know, however many days the TLE data was good for, it would show you when you could actually go outside and see the ISS pass over your QTH. So very cool. And it will do lots of other things too. It just does it in a text-only format. did seem very useful, and it did outline, like, uh, azimuth information lat long for passes and showed you date and time, and I presume it was in UTC. It didn't indicate UTC, but I'm going to assume it was UTC. I assume that it could be scripted as well, it doesn't have a specific like uh, API designation or anything like that, but I presume you could hand it arguments from the CLI, but I did everything as a sort of uh, text-based menu options. Uh, it worked really well for me. So what do you think, Bill? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it works good. The only thing I think it really needs is is possibly, you know, a network update for the uh, Kep- Keplerian data or whatever, you know, the updated uh, Kep files. The G predictor, GNU predictor, whatever it's called, the you know, that one kind of has all the bells and whistles and, and everything else. And I don't think that one does visible passes, but it does just about everything, <laughs> just about everything else. But this is a great piece of software, you know, considering what it's uh, it's fairly dated. I don't think he's done very many updates to it. And I didn't try uploading new uh, the new uh, satellite elements from a file uh, to see uh, if I could get everything running. Because I noticed that, like, it doesn't have the ISS in there. It's in there, but you know, if you press the X, it doesn't go anywhere. It just comes back to the main menu. So it has some of the older satellites, and I, and I don't know if it can handle new satellites. It, so it only handles it only handles the satellites that it actually knows about. I believe you could, since it's GPL, you could go in there and add any new satellites to it. And as long as you have the Keplerian data, you can update it for whatever. Because it did the same thing for me when I first started it up. If I wanted to track the ISS, it just gave me the main menu back again. Oh, but so then, you updated the elements, right? You download it as a text file. After I did that, it absolutely gave me all the data about ISS passes. But even with G-Predict, you have to download the TLEs. It just has that part of it included in the software, which this doesn't. And visible passes are really cool to show people. So, <laughs> right. especially ISS passes. It becomes a good conversation piece to get people involved in, you know, amateur radio, space satellite work and stuff like that. KD0IGP in the chat room says he watched the ISS pass over early in the day. The space shuttle had departed from it. You could see both of them about a second or two apart. Now that's cool. That would be cool. Yes. I don't think I ever saw the space shuttle, but even seeing just the ISS is neat. So we're going to move on. We got some music for you tonight. 
this was an interesting piece of music. It kind of starts out slow, but it picks up some steam, and I think everyone will enjoy it. It came from Jumendo. A link to it will, of course, be in the show notes. It runs about 4 minutes 20 seconds. Came out March of last year. This is a group from Deutschland. They're called Project Phonics. The album from which this came is Visions 2, and the song is a winter song. So I'm going to go ahead and play this, and we'll be back in a little over four minutes to, uh, I don't know, chat about it. We'll see what happens.
I was looking for something winter, Christmas, holiday, something themed, and that one seemed to stick out for me. So I enjoyed it, actually. I don't care about the rest of you. I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was pretty good. So I I liked how it kind of picked up. It's kind of slow, has fast parts. uh, You know, I always love a good instrumental. So moving on from the music and from all of our previous you know, categories of topics for the evening. We're going to move on to announcements and feedbacks. And the first one we're going to talk about is a Google Plus post from Rick Stoner. He just posted on Google Plus that at this month's radio club for him, he's doing a brief presentation on using Linux in the ham shack. Uh, he was putting together the final touches to the material and rehearsing the pitch. And I noticed he sent a slide over on the Google Plus thread that showed Linux in the Hamshack, the podcast that you're listening to right now, prominently featured as a source for his talk. So thanks very much to Rick for that. Hope that goes over well for you if you haven't actually done it already. Uh, a link to the Google Plus thread will be in the show notes if you want to check that out and any future comments that are related to that talk at his Ham Radio Club. All right. Um, I did want to address the fact that we've talked on the show about Matt Williams before, KD9BWJ. He is a recent addition to the ham radio community. He's been an open source advocate for a very, very long time. We got to see him last in late August of this year. Yeah. Uh, at that time, he was having a very tough battle uh, against his esophageal cancer. He fought it for a long time, but unfortunately, the day after my birthday, he lost his fight with esophageal cancer. He passed away on the 6th of December. There have been lots of people talking about this, like in the Hacker Public Radio community and the open source community and stuff. Matt had just started a project called uh, OpenFosTraining.com. His trip to scale last year, funded by a Kickstarter, he was able to go to that long-time contributor to open source and to the Hacker Public Radio community. So we wanted to acknowledge that. He was a good friend of ours. He's been on the show before. He's been on lots of shows. He's a big part of the open source community. And I think everyone has expressed their sorrow and concern and their uh, feelings of loss and support to the family. For those who knew him as Matthew Williams or as KD9BWJ or as Lord Drakenblut or as whatever other names he's... uh, been known as in the community uh we want to pass our condolences on to his daughter to his family and to everyone who knew him he left a lasting legacy and we're sorry to see him go for those that are in the indianapolis area there will be a celebration of life memorial for him on january 7th from noon to five the address is at 1749 hospital drive in martinsville if anybody has any pictures of him from you know linux conferences or anything like that um he leaves a very young daughter i believe ada's five around five five, yeah his mother and his sister and stuff are putting together kind of a photo album for his daughter he was he was quite young fought a long battle they say the good die young to the same end we have a voicemail actually from uh former sort of on hiatus i guess (laughs) (laughs) co-host of the program rich (laughs) KD0RG, and I have actually not listened to this yet, so uh, let's hear what Rich has to say about Lord Drakenblut. Uh, Hi, Russ and Cheryl. I just heard on Hacker Public Radio that Lord D. and uh, I know he was a friend of the show. Uh, Give you guys my condolence. I'm pretty sure you were uh, more than just acquaintance. You guys have a good holiday. Thanks for all the shows. 73 KD0RG. 
it'll definitely be remembered for sure. Sadly, we're going to have to move on from that <laughs> to Cheryl's recipe corner. Unfortunately, there's no real bridging that gap. Yeah, so. there, yeah. There's no way to bridge over to that. So. Appropriate segue. <laughs> Stuff so, in your face with pie. There you go. <laughs> I guess so. I'm sure he would have done it if he could. Oh yeah, that's right. Since it is Christmas or almost Christmas, this time I'm doing white Christmas pie. It's a very quick and easy pie to make. You need two pie shells, uh, either a graham cracker or a regular dough pie shell, a can of sweetened condensed milk, a third of a cup of lemon juice, some coconut, some chopped nuts, which I personally like pecans. Russ is one of those walnut people for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> crushed pineapple, some pineapple extract, and some Cool Whip or some sort of you know frozen whip topping. And you just stir everything together pour it in the pie shell and you're done it's very pretty at christmas time if you garnish it with some cherries and maybe a mint leaf or something so what is russ's thoughts on the pie the pie is great but as with any sweets with me like one slice of pie i'm i'm good for like six months that's all i need so. except for apple pie <laughs> well apple or pie chocolate chip cookies oh chocolate chip cookies yeah yeah i can have those every day yeah but. you've you've plowed through two big huge bowls of chocolate chip cookies it's taken me week. a couple of weeks come on <laughs> that's what you me- wanted for your birthday you got chocolate chip cookies and banana bread so. that's right chocolate chip cookies yes they're definitely my thing if anyone wants What's to get me anything for christmas now you know did so. you notice anything different about those chocolate chip cookies? I actually didn't, other than the fact that you kept saying you overcooked them. I also used rum in them. Oh, so you did Scott's recipe. I used Scott's recipe, yes. All right, so. very good. Okay. No question about that. All right, well, that's the recipe. Of course, a link to uh, all of the information about making the white Christmas pie will be in the show notes, so check that out if you want to make it. super easy. It only takes you, what, half hour or something like that? Oh, no, it takes like five minutes. Well, you have to refrigerate it a little bit while. Yeah, it, yeah. Needs, it needs to refrigerate for a few right. minutes. But, but yeah. it's basically a no-bake pie, and, you know, by the time it's cold, it's ready to yeah. eat. All right, well, moving on, we've got our social media roundup. This week, we have, for donations and subscriptions, Jonas Rulo, Jeremy Hall, Michael Connolly, Scott Pettigrew, Bob Yerke, Paul Griffith, Ronald Ike, Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, Robert Halliday, Ben Schram, Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan Wilson, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, James Walker, Mike Lasky, Darren King, Petro Karsarkis, Donna Farron, Bill Stearns, Bill Piotr, Robert Pitts, Jeff Knell, John Fotsky, and Doug Redder. For Facebook uh, this week, we have had Jared Crane, Tim Reed, Eugene or Eugene, I'm not sure, uh, Pesek, Benish Bene, Rich Nice, and Edward Gilligan just scraped in under the wire. He popped up like two seconds ago. For Google Plus was Sean Smith. Uh, for Twitter, we have Jake C. Baum, Sturgeon Kent, Tool Guy 57, K9ABR, Jam Dog 509, Citadel Bark, and 6809 Coder. And this week we didn't have any new YouTube people. Nobody joined us on the mailing list. And there were no merchandise sales. Which is all right. It's uh, the holiday it's season. Christmas. That's right. So if you want to support the program, feel free to buy some merchandise. And I want to say, as I've said in the past couple of episodes, 
our Google AdSense account is very, very close to sending us a disbursement, and we have had lots of people clicking on those links. I looked at it today. We were up over 300% on link clicks in the last month. So if you want to keep clicking on those links on the right-hand column of the webpage, we're about to get paid. And you know what? Clicking on those links doesn't cost you as a listener one red cent, and Google is the one who pays us on that. So if you want to click on those links, we would really appreciate it. The outro is playing in the background, and it's time to get on out of here. So you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. And we love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave voicemail at one nine zero nine lhs show That's one nine zero nine five four seven seven four six nine. You can also visit our IRC channel at Octothorpe LHS Podcast on the Freenode IRC network. You can also subscribe to our mailing list. The link to that's on the webpage. And there's usually someone hanging out in the IRC channel all day and all night, 24-7-365, to uh, have a conversation with you as a listener of the program. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke LHS podcast. You can also help out the show, as I've said before, like just not two minutes ago, by clicking (laughs) on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. Uh, You can listen to us live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu in the winter, 0200 Zulu in the summertime our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website and that website is lhspodcast.info and that site contains everything you ever wanted to know about the show linux in the ham shack and we want to thank all of our listeners and all of our supporters live quasi live past present and future we appreciate every single one of you click on those links we want to see the money coming our way make it a christmas present for us all so this has been episode number 180 of linux in the ham shack and yes we've been doing this thing since 2008 and we're still doing it so i'm russ k5tux that's cheryl good night everyone and that's bill any 4rd 73 everyone and we'll see you in well one week's time yeah Yeah, i know we're packing them in tight so have a good christmas everybody and a merry holiday season we'll see you in seven days good night